it was compounding where it just it felt like too much. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at the time I said, this is meant to be, but this is not how I'm meant to go. I Something came to me and said that internally. And it still gives me goosebumps and shivers at the back of my neck as I say that now, um, six years on. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Uh, our guest is Toph Evans. Toph is someone who has been involved in the sports realm using endurance-related activities like ultramarathons to cope with his mental health. Toph understands what it means to fight through adversity fueled by drugs and alcohol abuse, organization, and an identity crisis. This behavior drove him into a rabbit hole of despair, not only a staple of Toph's early 20s, but a catalyst to lead him to suicidal ideation. We talk openly about his upbringing and the triggers that got him to a specific moment in time. When we feel powerless, abandoned or unworthy, it can isolate us from love. Surrender is a practice uh, of complete acceptance of the resistance uh, to resistance um, and letting in what we are really feeling. Once we can accept where we are at, asking for help becomes a lot easier and I can definitely relate to that. These are a handful of, uh, of some of the things we mention in this episode as Toph delves into his vulnerability and shares the lessons learned from dark days. Acceptance for Toph became the impetus for him to find his worth, get healthy and fit and give back to his community, raising money and awareness for various charities by putting his body through extreme endurance events. This led to Toph releasing his first book in 2018 called Everyone Has a Plan Until Shit Hits the Fan as a tool to help the reader adapt and be resilient in sticky situations impacting readers across the world. Fast forward to today, Toph is heavily involved in the technology space, helping scale-ups and enterprise companies enhance their client and customer experience, as well as his involvement in men's work facilitation for the Mankind Project, MKP, a strong community and support group where men learn how to process childhood trauma and improve their connection to healthy, mature masculinity um, to become male role models uh, that their communities so desperately need. Trigger warnings in this episode include references to suicide. So as always, um, maybe pause that bit if you're not ready to listen to it um, or listen to it with a trusted friend uh, and work through it at your own pace. Uh, I'm really excited to get into this one and uh, share another inspiring journey of people who live and manage and cope well with their mental health challenges every day. So with that, here's Toph and I. When I was first trying to pronounce your name, uh, Jules said it's toast with an E and I wrote back saying, but what part is the E? Is it, a, <laughs> is it for the T? Like, is it Eost? Um, and then I quickly realized that it was at the end of the word. Uh, so Toph Evans, but your real name is Christopher, right? That is correct, mate. Yeah. 
And so what, what's, what inspired the transition to the rebrand? Oh, to be honest, man, like at school, there was so many Chris's and it was just an easy way to distinguish because a friend's like, can we call you Tofa? But we're like, we'll spell it T-O-F-A. And then over the years, everyone has just shortened it to, to Tof, which is fascinating to me because I'm the only Tof Evans in this world. And from a branding standpoint, it's, there's so many Chris's, Chris Evans's or Christopher Evans's. So yeah, Tof just, and it sticks. And I feel like that's to my identity. It's just, and it's different because I'm a little bit different. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's been a, a miracle for, 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 for work branding accidentally created during your school years. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And how were the school years for you, man? Where, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I, I was born in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. I have a Filipino mom. Um, my dad's also from New Zealand. And then I, was, I moved over to Australia when I was about five or six. Um, went to school in Gold Coast and, and uh, Logan area. Um, and school, school was, a, was a fascinating one for me. I was, I was quite an academic student. Um, I loved sports as a kid. I was, I was pretty good at swimming growing up. And then when I got to high school, it became very academic for me. But mm. there also, I switched to academic because I was always the kid that got picked on last for any sort of team sports. And that, funnily enough, I had done a lot of work myself later on to find out I was carrying a lot of judgments as a kid um, where I was the chubby kid. I was a kid that always got picked last because my hand-eye coordination was pretty bad at the time. And for me, it was just like, all right, screw it. If no one can appreciate me for sports, I'm going to go to academia. And funnily enough, after going through a bit of a crisis, I found sport again. (laughs) And and I I laugh about it because I just find it ironic. (laughs) Yeah. So what was it like for you at the start of all that, loving something, but it not loving you back in a way? There must have been a lot of tension there. It was. It's something i'm still working on today um Mm. i yearn for adventure like when i'm with my partner we try and go for a hike on the weekends or something that's activity related because i think i had neglected myself from sports so much that i'm finding that inner kid about myself still today and it's like all these things are coming out that i never did as a kid and it's like i'm which i'm very grateful for because i think we should all embrace our inner child and it's being childlike not childish um And yeah. And so the, the move towards academia, did it feel natural or did it feel like you were compensating for needing to quote unquote show value and you were just trying to fit in? I would say both. I think it's like a myriad of things. I, I think I had, I was a bit of an intellect and that's not to like, like show my ego off or anything, but I don't think I was doing it in the right subjects because obviously in schools where almost all this information is jammed down our throats and we have to remember all the stuff, but it was around the subjects I didn't learn. If it was around maybe psychology or around even like mental health or about sports science and different subjects, I feel like mm. it would have a different, a different effect. But at the same time, I felt like I needed to fit in that way so I could show my worth by, because as a guy or as a man, it's almost shameful if I'm not good at something. And that's just a, a shadow that I can carry. And for me to be, be conscious and aware of that shadow, um, I'm enough the way I am today. And I'm, I'm grateful I can say that and that I, I've done the work to, to do that. But at the time, there were all these like social cues to go, I have to fit in this basket, I have to fit in this. And it's like labeling myself as this. 
because of my identity. What What did you want people to say during that time? Is it that we don't care if you're good at anything, we just love you for who you are? Like what, what would you have wanted your best friend to say to you? that i would say that so we accept you for who you are but for that to happen i have i have to be able to accept myself first if anything i'm sure you learned yeah. that as an adult because at the time it's quite a quite a big concept to grasp absolutely and i think what helps me remembering that and is a good reminder is when i surrender because i find surrender is the acceptance of resistance at the time yeah but the, but like you said man it's having people going oh, well, we accept you for who you are and yeah, you're good the way you are. Was there any uh, coming from New Zealand and obviously a different culture to Australia? I think New Zealand's, from what I can see, an outsider's perspective, the beauty of it is the community aspect of um, Pacific Island culture and also how body-based it is. You know, there is huge importance on um, using the body as uh, as a means of engaging with life, but also in career, I find a lot of um, Islander community, they're using their bodies a lot in their career. Coming then to Australia, you're obviously, you said five. Did you find any issues around assimilation or did you ever feel like an outcast there? It's funny you mentioned that. I was saying this to my colleague the other day, how I thought, I didn't realize that I had a different accent at the time. I had like a pretty strong Kiwi accent brew. And people could tell. And I was like, is this making me different? And because I'm like half Filipino, so I'm like, I've got the Asian side of me as well. I never felt like I was, um, always felt like I was an outlier or a, because everyone else are the uh, typical white people. Um, and I went to the, like those kind of schools. Um, I look at it now and I'm like, it's, it is a kind of a blessing in disguise because I can always relate to people who do feel like, um, that might not feel normal as well. So mm. it, it, it's something that I think it's given me empathy and compassion for other people because I know what it's like to feel different as well. So I think I'd carried that. Um, and, and funnily enough, my school years too, I was probably one of the biggest people pleasers I've ever known at the time. I always did it because I got um, the hell kicked out of me for defending a friend at one point. Um, and for me, it was like, I couldn't put boundaries in place because I thought people were going to like beat me up. Mm. Mm. And I think that compassion and empathy probably is with you today in your, what you do for work, you're creative. So you do UX design for those who don't know what that is. That's a user experience. So the way someone engages with a product or a service or an app or a website, uh, and you do production and all that stuff. So do you think the empathy and the emotional intelligence you've built through your hardship allows you to do the work that you do today? I think it is a big element, absolutely. Because being in the people industry, it's, it's more CX than UX, I should probably t on that. So more like the, the customer experience as opposed to the user experience. Um, mm. Being in the people industry, as you're probably aware of, man, as you, for yourself, people are dynamic. Everyone is different. Um, it fascinates me how many parenting books are out there for example i'm not a parent yet but i will be um but how like there's no cookie cutter method and i think it's the same thing understanding that everyone is different and having like that toolkit and repertoire to know how to handle different people definitely helps being as a creative as well 
When was the first time you knew that something was wrong or that you were different? Oh, a big one for me, mate. It would have been probably grade four. Um, that my dad, because my dad is two generations older than me. So realizing that my dad is probably a lot older than a lot of other dads. That was probably the first one that really hit me. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I carried a lot of shame around that, unfortunately, because mm. of this whole normalization of what society should be that today I look at it now and I see a best friend in my, in my dad every, every time I see him, which is beautiful to say. And yeah, it's like having that acceptance. It's like having the cards that I was dealt with. And at the end of the day, my dad gives me love like anyone else would really get given love. So that would probably be the, be the first one, if anything. Mm. And so there's already a, a sense of, of shame because you're like, I'm not like everyone else. Yes. Why is my dad so old? And as a child, you're just looking to see what everyone else is doing in order to feel yeah. like you're okay. And what happened from there in terms of when, when did you start to experience mental ill health? Oh, good question, mate. For it to be really conscious and be properly aware of it, I would say in my early 20s, um, I would have all these, because I have all the unconscious behaviors that were driving it to a specific tipping point. Um, and... For me, I was masking everything with drinking, with drugs, with trying to be other people. So I'm not even authentic in anything that I was doing because I wasn't happy with the person I was. And I had no idea what was going on. Mm. And I had a couple of breakups at the time, didn't know how to handle myself during those periods, went traveling, did a lot of fun stuff. But it started to build up like um, when you put like a met or when I put a Mentos into like a Coke bottle when it explodes, like that science experiment, that's what it ended up becoming. And then it got really dark at one point, dude. It got really mm -hmm. dark um, where it was like, I think suicide has to be the only answer because it was the only thing that felt really purposeful. And that was probably at, at one of my lowest periods. And that helps in a really good way. That was a blessing disguise to get me where I am today. Okay. So let's unpack some of that. What, what are some of the behaviors and signs that were leading up to that point that made you consciously become aware something's not right? Self-talk. It's like the things I was telling, uh, like the stories I was telling myself, the, the wounds and the shadows that were driving all these behaviors, the things that repressed me. Um, a lot of, what were some of those self-talk? I'm not worthy of love. I had, a lot of issues with unworthiness and powerlessness. Not as much abandonment, but that does come in, but it's not as prominent as the other two. So being unworthy of love. And I've, funnily enough, a lot of it was trying to get dad's love. And that's mm. what was driving a lot of that behavior. And it'd be funny because I would always gravitate towards men that would almost become like father figures to compensate for it. And... Yeah, at the end of the day, it was just like, all I wanted was just to hear dad say, I love you. But he comes from a different generation and he actually presents love in different ways. And love, I was treating it like this little candle and 
when really love is infinite. Love is healthy communication. And it's, um, it comes in different forms. It can come from acts of service. It doesn't just have to be those literal three words. Um, so I, I think that was, or, and I feel as well, there were the main drivers of what was causing that behavior as well. So you were wanting to hear the words from him, whereas he was showing it to you in different ways. Yeah. Is that right? And what that would do is, unfortunately, I'm, I'm very grateful that I can say that I seek help, like I have therapists and go to men's work and do all these things, that when I'm not present, I, I'm either in future-focused living, which is anxiety, or I'm in past-focused living, which is depression. And when those two are working together, it's like a mental tug-of-war. Mm -hmm. But when I'm in future-focused living in particular, I start to tyrannize people, more myself. So when I'm present, I'm in love. Like, and that's, that's how I can be. That, for me, that's, if, you, if I was asked three or four years ago, what does success look like to me or what does happiness look like to me? And I would say the big cars or the, the big house and the cars and this, 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 this. It's really not. It's, to me, it's to be present. <laughs> and then that's mm. like optimal bliss. To be present because to be present means to be loved and feel yes. like you're enough. Bang on, man. Bang yeah. on. So success really looks like feeling loved or being loved. Yeah. I'd, yeah. It's, it's fascinating how like deep-rooted that trigger had been for me. And I'm, mm -hmm. I think there are other people that could probably relate to that, that would have similar behaviors that would drive Absolutely. Um, them to specific tipping points or to meltdowns or breakdowns or crises or, yeah, and so on. Do you remember a time with your dad where you were just like, fuck, I just want you to be proud of me right now. And you're not like, you're not showing it. Mm. I would say nowadays he definitely shows it. I'd say he'd be my number one fan. Uh, probably more in my teens, if anything, or there were times when, because as a kid to spell love to the child, it's not L-O-V-E, it's T-I-M-E. And maybe when he wasn't showing up at specific games, like I tried, like I was playing soccer at one point at basketball. Mum was there, but dad wasn't there. But he was in the best he could. He wanted to provide at the time. But I didn't have any consciousness around this at the time. So you equated his lack of presence to a lack of care. Mm -hmm. There's a correlation yeah. between that for sure. Yeah. And so you started building this really negative self-talk of you're not enough um, you, you mentioned the drinking and the drugs uh, as a way to kind of numb and escape. Were there things that other people noticed in you? Oh, yeah, that I wasn't myself, that I was losing myself, if anything, trying to be other people. And that really, the, the biggest example of that from an, multiple anecdotal experiences from a, a habit that I kept doing was in relationships. When I would meet a girl really liked i pretended i was someone else and then months into the fling or the relationship at the time when i could finally feel comfortable and in my own skin that person would retract because they would see me for who i am but that's not the person i actually wanted to be with it and that's my own fault for getting to that to that um to that period because i wasn't authentic in the first place so when i am authentic they're like well this is a totally different person and so fortunately, the relationship I'm in now, on the first date, I actually said to her, well, I'm going to be 100% open, honest, and vulnerable, and transparent, and what you see is what you get. 
So, mm. so it seemed like the uh, the directness worked. Um, and by the way, for everyone playing at home, that sometimes works and it sometimes does. Well, let's redefine that. It always works in the sense that I think realness is the only way. Uh, otherwise, it just creates pain by pretending to be something that you're not. But not everyone can accept realness or, or hold that because uh, I know f- for some people when I'm fully myself, they're like, oh, too much, can't, can't handle it, blah, blah, blah. And then we start to build a narrative of, well, then being real is wrong. It rejects people, it pushes people away, whereas that's not true. Um, the narrative really is that that person has their own stuff going on. And when I show up as me, it brings something up in them. And so don't let someone's inability to see all of you make you feel like that the parts that you showed are wrong. Cause that's not true. More often than not, it's on them if they can't handle the whole thing. And it's uh, it makes relationships a lot easier and quicker because you're like, Hey, well, if you can't accept me, then there's no point even walking down this path. Mm. How did, I'm curious to know, mate, how did you learn that? Like when, when was the epiphany, the realization that you understood that? By not having a choice to be anyone else by mm. becoming so unwell that pretty much all the layers of my ego got stripped well beyond my own control. And I was left very raw and emotionally naked. Then there was nothing else to hide behind. And thankfully, after the surrendering and being raw, I was able to feel loved by my family and friends to the point where I could rebuild on the inside out and not be ashamed, let go of the parts that weren't serving me and the parts that were serving me no longer hide behind shame and come into the world with confidence. Mm. And that, that feeling of, uh, what was that term? Emotionally naked? Is that what you said? Yeah. I really like that term. Uh, mm. Putting the shield down, it has to be one of the scariest things for the first time. Nowadays, it's yeah. for myself, it's gotten easier um, because I'm like, this is when the joy comes out. Like something beautiful is going to come out of this. But at the time, it's, I think a lot of fear of judgment would, would be driving the shield to be staying up yep. because of what others would say to me. Yeah, and the the shield, the metaphorical shield serves a purpose. Um, It's there to keep us safe and to be free from, yeah, attacks to our psyche. I think the problem is the shield becomes too big, too heavy, and no longer is actually a positive. It becomes a negative. Uh, You don't need to then just drop the shield and walk away. Um, But I think letting that become smaller and smaller to the point where it actually becomes useful again. Yeah. Um, I think having some type of defense is good. It's just, is it becoming so burdensome and cumbersome that it's actually no longer good? It's not allowing you to survive. It's the thing that's threatening your survival. Um, so yeah, it, it is a process. And it sounds like for you that not only were you starting to notice things internally, but it was starting to affect your everyday life and the people that you were interacting with. And it was getting too hard to hold. And Mm. I really liked the word that you said, I had to surrender because I was, you know, really contemplating the sustainability of my own life. Was there a moment or an event that brought everything to a head and you just was just like, that's it, I'm done. I, I would say it was compounding 
where it just it felt like too much. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at the time I said, this is meant to be, but this is not how I'm meant to go. I, something came to me and said that internally. And it still gives me goosebumps and shivers at the back of my neck as I say that now, um, six years on. But I would say that that was probably the that was probably the main one, if anything. And that's a big that's a big moment in your life. That shift. What gave you the strength, the courage, the insight to say, "No, nah, this is not right." Oh, good question. I it'd probably be letting people down. If anything, if I if I reflect on it, um, it'd it'd be for me to. I I didn't want to let people down, and I would say that would probably be the people pleaser in me, <laughs> mm. and it was like I wasn't able to commit to that. But that's a pretty good commitment to not s- stick with. If anything, so there you go, prime example of your defense pattern actually playing a really strong role. Mm. <laughs> and being there to serve you and it's come through with the goods when you needed it most. Uh, but it sounds like you've learned how to, uh, lower the amount that you call or need that defense to be there. Um, yeah. And, and even though, you know, you didn't want to let people down you didn't go through with that act. How do you start the process of rebuilding? Like, what did that look like for you? Oh man. It was a lot of depression <laughs> uh, and that, that's fine because that's part of the process. That's part of the journey for me at the time. It was, I was, people mask things differently. I was masking through sleep because I would b- rather be unconscious than awake. So I could sleep like a mofo. I could sleep for anywhere between 16 to 20 hours. Get up, go to the toilet, go back to bed, have some bite to eat, whatever, go back to bed. Uh speaking about it being vulnerable started to open up the process then acceptance acceptance of this is uh, having that mentality of okay this is the bottom the only way is up and asking for help and that, that had to be one of the hardest things at the time because i like at the time it's like men wouldn't cry men don't cry or men don't ask for help and I'm fortunate that these days, if I need to cry, I'll get it out for sure. Cause it's a mm. release. It's a beautiful release. And by getting the tears out and asking for help and, and speaking about it around people that I feel like there won't be any judgment, it, it opens like a clear pathway to get back on track. And it gives me some sort of clarity that, okay, I am worthy. I am able to get back on track. And for me, the big one was probably exercise. It was, I tend to have an addictive personality, but over times I realized that I don't have to have those addictions. Like I've had addictions with porn. I'm probably, I'm going to say two, three months, no porn. And I feel great. I'm probably like four and a half months, no coffee. I've been a chronic coffee drinker since I was like 16. Um, and I used exercise as a massive outlet um, because it gave me discipline it gave me structure, gave me routine again. And then I used it to give back. So it ended up being very wholesome to come around full circle where I could give this back to people. So I feel like I could make a difference in this world, a small difference. 
um, and show others that I can make a full 180, but it was also to do it for myself as well. Yeah, absolutely. I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, I ended up reaching out and asking for help and we, we very often stop the conversation there and say, oh, you know, that was good. But I think for a lot of people listening to that statement, it's just like, that's like saying I just went to France. Like that's a long trip away, you know, and, and for a lot of people, it's an insurmountable jump. Um, do you remember what the process was like to actually being vulnerable? Like what are some things that happened for you to physically gain the strength and courage to do that? Oh, at first I could, there was a small handful of friends I could speak to the ones that like that know me had, had seen me through there. So I know that they would be able to understand and let them know what was actually going on. That was probably the first step for me. Um, and for me, it was having them just to listen, not to provide any solutions, not to chip in or anything, just hear me out. And just so I was heard, um, because when I felt powerless, I felt like my voice was taken away from me and I couldn't put my hand up for anything. And when I could feel heard, then it started to give me my power back in a way. Mm. Yeah, uh, that that simple act of not even asking for help, but asking for an ear. You know, I, we often say, reach out, ask for help, but it's not always what's required. Sometimes reaching out and just asking for someone to listen is just as powerful. And help might be part of that conversation. But the biggest thing is to get it off your chest and onto your sleeve, as we say here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the... Um, the, the you, you mentioned you know speaking up and then exercise and uh, that type of thing there's there's what i would call general coping skills which helps you maintain like exercise meditation diet etc et but then there's also um periodic coping skills or episodic where you need to go back into some of the causation and rewire old belief systems like exercising isn't getting you closer and closer to why I felt unlovable in the first place. It's just giving you a positive mental health to, to stabilize, mm. but we need to also go down and do the work and get into the seed and be like, where's this all coming from? So when did you start to gain insight around? Well, part of the reason I feel upset is actually because I've never felt fully loved by my father and whoever else. And then, who and how did you start reshaping those belief systems? Good question. And this will probably be a really deep answer. Um, that's what we're here for. Perfect. Cause that's the kind of person I met. Uh, Good. when I was doing all this, um, all this exercise, I, I found sport again, ironically. So I, I resorted to running cause I'm like, it'd be the cheapest sport. I just have to get a pair of shoes and I don't have anyone rely on me to throw a ball or anything. And, Running became just get to the letterbox, get to Apple and do five meters and let's just focus on small goals. And then small goals became marathons and ultra marathons. And one event that I was fortunate enough to be a part of was an attempt to run across Scotland. So it was about 345 Ks through paddocks in the middle of the night and it was a registered event and everything this is like 100 people maniacs just doing the thing for the love of running Whoa. and i had to pull out 
280k in, which is still a long time. It's like seven marathons. And Holy there's a, Moses. There's a video of me breaking down. There's a video of me breaking down of my mate recording me. And I said, record this when you can. Like record every moment, especially the me of the hard parts. And in that video, I was talking about how I'm, I was doing this for two reasons. The selfless reason was for that time when I was ready to end it. Uh, that I can give myself a full like th- 360, like a full revamp. But it was also for anyone else that we like. It was for a cause of to raise the awareness for anyone else that was feeling the same that may have felt like unworthiness. Funnily enough, I'm so grateful that I didn't finish that event because I went through heavy, heavy identity crisis after that. So I was wondering why, like, I couldn't finish this big race. People are going to know me for this ultra runner, but I don't want to be a runner anymore. And I, a lot of everything I had done, these unconscious behaviors were driven from identity. And I would, and the funny thing is, like a friend told me around identity is kind of like this Buddhist principle. If we have a container and we've got all these dots in there, every one of those dots symbolizes a different thing. So I'm a son. But if for whatever reason, both my parents are gone, I'm no longer a son. If I'm a creative and if I were to pass away, I'm no longer creative. Or if I do like a career change and whatever, all these things. So I've had to learn how to detach myself from certain things. But what got me there was I reached out to one of my dear friends and he said, hey, mate, there's this organization I'm a part of called MKP, Mankind Project. Go to the circle. My mate will be there. He'll look after you. And ever since I've been going to that, I'm like literally doing work on myself and that's probably what got me there. That's how I've, I've got a, a really great understanding of like of shadows and all these behaviors and understanding like why story, like the stories that I'm telling myself and picking and like catching myself in at the time as well. And in the moment, all because of a, of a race that I had didn't finish. And I thought I was doing it for the right things. And oddly enough, from the work that I had been doing, a lot of the charity stuff that I was doing, I was doing it so people could see that I was a good person, but I don't mm. just have to do charity stuff to be a good person. And I'm definitely not against charities or anything, but I was doing it for validation. And that would probably be the biggest driver of everything. Like I was trying to get seeking people's approval I'm trying to seek dad's approval without even knowing, trying to seek mom's approval without even knowing my partner. And when I realized that I have to be like, I would never ever get rid of the external validation. I think there is a part of that for example, if I'm running a, ri- a race, the, ch- the crowd cheering is kind of like validation, but it's also a feel-good feeling as well, but I'm not relying on them um, or like words of affirmation if we talk about love languages. But validation was probably driving every bit of behavior. It would fall into every aspect of my life, unfortunately. But now, yep. that, I have, now that I have awareness around it, I don't have to rely on people's validation to do anything that I do, which is a great feeling. It's a, it's a beautiful feeling. It's a release. It's I've detached myself from there and it's a still ongoing process. It's a, it will always be a work in progress. It's such a huge shift that you've made to go from someone who's not even aware of some of these underlying insecurities to I'm now, not, I'm now not only aware of some of these core wounds that I've been holding, I'm unlovable, et cetera, but I have the skills and the tools to be able to challenge them and not let them rule my life. And although you said that not finishing the race kind of uh, was the catalyst for that, it certainly wasn't the only reason why you've been holding this since you were a young kid. 
was it through the was it through the men's circles that you think that you developed the skills and the language to be able to build that awareness and subsequently challenge those belief systems yeah because belief is a strong value of mine and when i'm the the biggest con about that like it's pro because i mean the good thing about it is i stand for something i've i believe in something the biggest con is if if i'm too fixated on it then i have a fixed mindset around it as opposed to an mm. open mindset so by going to these things and being uh being open-minded it i'm having different perspectives around this and it's not shutting everything down and having an open ear and how to do it but the reason why i'm doing it is to better myself as a person so i show up as an accountable man around myself and my partner and my my family and my colleagues and the people around me as well so like so i so i live with integrity and yeah mm. yeah integrity is such a key word i think particularly for people who are on a journey because there's you kind of when you become aware of your own shit you're you're faced with two decisions i can either run from this more and further push myself into escapism denial etc or i can look this thing in the eyeball and be opt into the potential pain that comes from healing this a bit more mm. but the integrity holds all that together because if you take the harder option the healing option you're going to have a million hurdles or reasons to not want to go toward that and it's the integrity of no this is who i want to be this is who i am at the core that gets you past those hundreds of moments a day where you're like actually fuck this mm. yeah. yeah i can i can relate to that i can definitely and that that hits home pretty hard as well and i'm sure as someone uh, you know running that far 280 kilometers there is a certain level of discipline that you've obviously built into yourself that helps with your mental health as well i would imagine is that true definitely and it w the the biggest one was like not letting the team down if i were to pull out it, over the last like five years or well, in a three-year span i think i'd done about 60 events and they'd range from half marathons to big races or being on a paddleboard for 65 kilometers and all these absurd events and that did grow a discipline over time. It, it taught me probably perspective. That was probably been the biggest life lesson that came out of it. I, I look back and I there's an amazing book called Born to Run and that probably, that's what inspired me the most. And these Tarahumara Indians that can run 300 miles at a time. And I'm like, okay, if if they can do that, surely I can do 42Ks. And mm. And it's not using anyone else's story as like, it's using perspective, not comparison in that case. I, and then I got to a point where I would meet these amazing people. Like there's one gentleman named Gary and he has no arms. He lost his arms and I would always see him on events. And my friend and I commemorated a race to him. And him and I ran around this two kilometer, um, crit, like a criterion um, circuit. So it was 2K, we did 50 laps of it, him and I. And just thinking about like his mindset was so great that when he had 80K in and he just goes, I've been through worse. And that, that's a beautiful reminder for myself when I'm running these things going, I've, I've always like, this is nothing. This is just a long slog in the office, as I call it, a long day in the office, but I've always been through worse. So that's probably the mindset I had when I, when I was 
now I've been injured for a little bit. So um, I've taken up yoga and cycling in the meantime. But by having that mindset of I've always been through worse or there is someone that's had it worse than I have, that's what helps me get me through it as well. Mm. And just reminding myself of the intention and the reason I did this in the first place. Selfishly, as someone who used to run and I've done marathons, um, but I, I'm more interested in the mental health learning. What do you mm. think gives, when you're 280 kilometers into a race, what gives out first, your body or your mind? Oh, the body, I would say. Okay. I think the mind would push more. Um, it, it's, it's a funny thing. I think it, change, it has changed over times. Like, you would understand this, mate, like the 30K and that's when the marathon actually really starts. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, and that's when I remember doing my first one. I'm like, oh, my God, it's, the anticipation was killing me. And when I had started, that first marathon, it, it emulates life in a way. Like we sign up for something that we haven't done and then getting it's like, oh, my God, are we really, the fear kicks in. And then jumping straight into it, oh, it's not that bad. And then 10K, it's not that bad. And then 30K in, okay, this is the slog and this is the reason why we're doing this in the first place, well, the reason why I was doing it in the first place. And then crossing the finish line, like just tears of emotion, like didn't know how to, it was like a massive process that I just went through and going, let's do another one. But it got me excited to embrace the shit. Cause I'm like, if I can do that, then what else can I do? And mm. it's, and I saw actually a piece of content you put out not too long ago, mate. And you said changing the word from struggle to challenge. And that's pretty much what I had been doing by signing up for more events because I was getting my worth back in a way. It's mm. like, it was, Unfortunately, a lot of the drivers for those races, in the back of my mind, it's a big F you for all the kids that called me fat and picked me last, which was not, which was unconscious, but I'm not doing any, it's probably not the best thing for my behavior. But nowadays, if I'd be running, I'm running for something, not away from something. Yep. And yeah, that's, and you're that's right. huge difference. And like you said, there's a huge mental health aspect of what drives the behaviors of things like. I would sign up for bigger and bigger races because I was trying to validate myself because trying to stay relevant per se. Mm. And when the ego creeps back in, because obviously we can't go from one school of thought to then now I'm just someone who's egoless and require, as you say, requires no validation. That's obviously unrealistic. What's the main practice or thought or physical action that you take when those old egoic thoughts kick in you start to become insecure. What do you do? Mm, that's a good question, mate. And part of me wants to say, I don't actually know entirely yet. I think I'm still trying to figure out that answer and I'm, I'm okay to put, I'm okay to say that mm. because th there are some things because sometimes I actually don't know how to handle it. And I might, fortunately, I do have the men's circle that I've been stepping into more facilitation, which is something I'm passionate about. It, it's kind of like counseling in a way. And by asking though, asking, like just being honest with them, going, this is what I'm going through right now. And for asking for advice at the time, that's probably how I get through it at times because there is a fear of my ego is going to come back and take over. And mm. I don't know what's driving that. It's probably a fear of losing control. That's, that's a big one for me. Um, feeling like I don't have, if I don't have it all together and it's not, and if everything's so unstable and it's too chaotic, 
it, people love it because some people love it because it helps them strive and it's having their back against the wall. But if it's too much, it becomes dysfunctional for me. Yep. Yeah, no, I appreciate your honesty there, man, around like, hey, I don't have it all figured out. I'm just giving it my best right now. And here's some of my fears that still exist. So I think it's important for listeners of this conversation to take in that, yes, it's possible to move beyond old stories, but it's also okay if you're not, you know, quote unquote, at the finish line yet. And we're still figuring out the what, what our ongoing running pace looks like, you know, and, and, and how to make that achievable in the long term. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's okay to say that I'm not okay. Sometimes like, are you okay? There's a blessing in disguise as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what, uh, what would be the, if you were to have a, um, if you were to hold up a sign on the corner of a, of a, of a big highway and people were going to see it when you were, uh, when they were driving past, what would it say in relation to mental health? What would you write on that sign for everyone that would see it? Three words. You are enough. That's it. So anyone that sees it, they're like, oh man, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> just... I would agree. Um, because I think a lot of suffering is just feeling inadequate. Also known as, to come full circle to the top of our episode, uh, not feeling loved. I think... The hippies had it right long ago, as does pretty much every major religion that ever existed, saying that the key to life, the key to happiness, the whole meaning of this all is to connect. So, yeah, man, it's been a pleasure connecting with you today. Um, And I appreciate you sharing some of your story and some of your tools. Um, And, yeah, just give give you the opportunity to talk about your book and where people can keep in touch with you. I appreciate that, man. And just touching on connection, that's my that's my own personal mission. That's my number one value. I know I've done enough personality tests for them all to say connection. And it makes me grateful of the adversity I've gone through so that I can connect with people like yourself and anyone else who's going through something. Um, because Brene Brown like hit it the nail on the head. Like humans are wired neurobiologically for story and connection. Mm-hmm. And it, that one, it just, it means so much to me. Like I can't even articulate it into words, just connection in itself and reconnecting with yeah. people I haven't seen in a long time. And that gives me, that just warms my heart up for a lot. But um, yeah, as, as mentioned before, um, you said the book, um, I, I wrote the book. It's called Everyone Has a Plan Until Shit It's the Fan. <laughs> um, because we have a plan when things go right, but no one, <laughs> I feel like not all of us have a plan when things go wrong. And I, I open out with the book saying there are 130 million books published approximately. There really isn't need for another book, but hopefully this one can save someone's life. And I don't, nice. I don't go off the metrics of how many books I've sold. I don't even know still, but I go off how many private messages I receive. And I'm fortunate enough that people have, I feel like I've hit that, what I wrote it out for. I've, I've had those kind of messages before and people saying, or people going, hey, dude, I've never ran more than 5K. I've just signed up for a marathon. Thanks for the inspiration. It's like, oh, I didn't expect that. Thanks. Yeah. And I had wrote part of it with a um, clinical psychologist. Um, so I wanted to get the science in there. Um, so like, I could really simplify some of the, the 
there's understanding in the brain. I have a lot of diary entries. So at the start of each chapter, instead of like an inspirational quote or a motivational quote, I have a diary entry of like at my darkest times and my best of times so people can relate. And mm. I, I, don't, I didn't really want to make it like a how-to kind of book. It was just really more of a memoir. It wasn't really a biography or anything like that. Um, it was more like this is my journey of being at the lowest points and how I've used endurance and mentors and, and some practical things that got me back on my feet. And I just wanted people that could relate to it. So that's the reason why I wrote it, mate. And awesome. Yeah. And yeah, on social media, where can people find you? Uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, I did have a TikTok at one point, but then I got too addicted to it, so I had to turn it off. Um, but it's just tof, T-O-F-E dot Evans, E-V-A-N-S. Awesome. Mate, thanks so much for your time today. And I uh, yeah, look forward to, to keeping in touch and supporting you and maybe even uh, running next to you in a marathon. Who knows? I'd love that, man. I really would. I just got to mend my, my injury for a little bit longer, but I would love to do that with you. You'll be back out there in no time, I'm sure. <laughs> thanks, mate. Cheers, mate.